once again, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. With me, as always, my distinguished partner in crime, my co-host, the man who is uh, single-handedly responsible for the Obama administration coming to power, the, <laughs> the, the man that Obama calls sire, J. David Markham. <laughs> Well, hello, Cameron, and and hello to our listeners, and uh, clearly Cameron has been sampling too much of of my medication, uh, apparently, uh, with that introduction. Uh, I'm a big fan of Obama, but I'm I'm guessing that Obama's not going to credit me with a whole lot uh, uh, of of influence in his administration. Uh, But like all Americans, I... I, I want him to succeed. All, all Americans, except maybe Rush Limbaugh, I, I want him to succeed, and 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 I think he will. And we're going to get off politics uh, again. Uh, as our guest uh, this evening, we have uh, my, my my very good friend uh, Alex McBridzi, Uh and the three of us were 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 talking uh, before we came on the air <clears throat> about what what we would call this show because we. We have uh, really kind of an eclectic uh, set of topics that we want to talk about today uh, with with you, Alex. Uh, uh, I thought we'd we'd start off by by finishing up a handful of of uh, Russian generals that you thought might be interesting. I know that many of our listeners are hearing about some of these uh, uh, leaders for the for the first time, and and I think that's important uh, that we give them a few more. And then we skipped over the the crossing of the Berezina. Uh, if there's if there's any symbol of the the Russian campaign, it is of course the the strategic withdrawal uh, of the French from 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 <laughs> Moscow. Uh, and uh, uh, if there's any symbol of that uh, strategic withdrawal, uh, the, the retreat, if you prefer, uh, it would of course. Uh, be the crossing of the Berezina, and uh, we talked about that, Cameron and I, when when we did our chronological uh, look. But I thought you might have some insights onto that. And then finally, I thought we would end up with the so-called Holy Crusade of uh, uh, Emperor Alexander, uh, and and what the long-term results. Of of the Russian continuation into Western Europe were so uh, the the overall theme is I guess wrapping up uh, our discussion of the the Russian campaign of eighteen twelve and I'll start off by asking how you doing these days, Alex. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm just trying to survive uh, severe thunderstorms uh, down in Louisiana. So, uh, but otherwise, I'm uh, doing well. Uh, this is the last semester, the last last week of the semester. So, I'm busy grading and uh, looking forward to a couple of weeks of rest. Well, your students are looking forward to a couple of weeks of rest as well. I imagine you know it's uh, when it comes to exams and papers. Uh, uh, the old adage always holds true, tis better to give than to receive. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so yes. for all, all of you complaining about having to read these papers, and I, I know this well from my own experience, they do pile up. The students will give you very little sympathy because they had to write them. 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so uh, do you have a few more uh, generals? The the list you gave me has one left whose name I recognize and know maybe a little bit uh, about, and that's uh, Petor uh, uh, Wittgenstein. Perhaps you could tell us about him, and and then maybe pick a few others that you think are are uh, of special note. Uh, sure. Uh, the uh, Wittgenstein uh, is one of the most prominent generals of the Russian army. His uh, full name is uh, um, actually he has, uh, depending on the, on the version of uh, preference, uh, the Russian name is uh, Pyotr Christianovich, uh, but he is uh, of German descent, and so the German name is Peter Ludwig Adolf. And so he's, uh, he was descended from a prominent Prussian uh, family. His father was actually serving in the Prussian army. But uh, he later switched the sites uh, during the Seven Years' War, and he enlisted in the Russian service in 1760s. And so he was um, lucky enough to uh, get married. Uh, uh, his father, he was lucky enough to get married rather successfully into a, prom- a very powerful uh, Dolgoruki fam- uh, family, uh, the Russian noble family. And so Wittgenstein, uh, when he was born, uh, he was... Uh, uh, actually uh, raised in in a, in a very prominent circle. He was a nephew of a Russian field marshal, Saltykov, uh, who, was, who distinguished himself in, in the late 18th century fighting Turks. And so uh, he, uh, he was, in, uh, 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 probably listeners remember, last time we talked about the system that Russians had of enlisting their children uh, at early age, and Wittgenstein uh, was, uh, in many respects, a beneficiary of that system. He was uh, enlisted in in relatively young age, and uh, he, by the time he was uh, in his twenties, he was already an officer, and uh, he was serving. Was dis- uh, he served with distinction in uh, in Poland, uh, and uh, in uh, actually in, in Dagestan, where he fought the Persians in 1796. Uh, his, uh, the, his turning point in his uh, career was in 1805 when he served with great distinction against uh, Napoleon uh, and he fought at Amstetten. Uh, uh, actually, served, he served with uh, Prince Bagration in, in that battle and uh, at Austerlitz, although with, not, uh, <laughs> no, with, with less success. Um, after Austerlitz, he served for, uh, for a year uh, in, uh, in Poland. Uh, he fought the Turks later in later years. And by 1808, uh, he was already a prominent uh, officer, a general, and so he was given a command in Finland. And so he served in Finland for three years from 1808 to 1811. Um, in 1812, he's given a, a command now of an independent corps, which was a very significant command. Uh, he was tasked with covering the St. Petersburg direction. Uh, and uh, in, he showed himself as a talented general because he fought off uh, Marshal Udino's uh, Attacks uh, and actually won an important battle at Polotsk in the fall of 1812. And so, following that victory, he's dubbed uh, the savior of St. Petersburg. And so, he becomes one of the most prominent uh, generals in the Russian army. And he, is, he was a very interesting you know, personality. Uh, a contemporary actually described him as a tall man with an aquiline nose, ardent eyes, tall forehead, and a smile that expresses beautiful soul, which can be seen on all features of his calm and attractive face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, he was known uh, for reckless gallantry. And uh, another contemporary described that uh, Wittgenstein belonged, quote, to those rare... Heroes who owe their fame not to fortune but to genuine military talents, fearlessness, firm decisiveness, and personal courage. 
Velen Companions of Genuine Heroes were his essential merits, unquote. Uh, and so, uh, but the, the remarkable thing about the general is that he, you know, when you look at his service um, by 1812, there's nothing, uh, nothing of distinction, uh, nothing comparable to Bagration's service, or nothing comparable to Miloradovich's service, uh, stands in his career. And so his his um, you know break it comes in 1812 when he commands a corps. But at the same time, that uh, it also shows that Wittgenstein uh, has uh, limits. Uh, uh, and the core level is is probably the best uh, he can do. Uh, he's very generous, uh, generous, uh, open-hearted. He's often described as chivalrous uh, and inspirational, but he's also very haughty, uh, impulsive, and incapable of uh, independent uh, command of large military operations. And so, in 1813, when he's given a command of the uh, Russian army to command uh, of the entire Russian army, his deficiencies come. Very obvious when Napoleon hammers uh, Wittgenstein at Lutzen in, in early May and then at Bautzen in late May. And so Wittgenstein, following the last battle, is dismissed as the commander-in-chief and he continues to command as a, as, uh, as a corps commander. And one of the interesting descriptions of him is um, comes from a famous uh, Russian historian who was at the same time uh, actually serving in the Russian army in 1813. And he describes him as... Uh, as follows, Wittgenstein's carelessness with respect to internal management of the army, which led to such disorder that the locations of such regiments were oftentimes completely unknown. The main headquarters was akin to a market square. Out of ca- kindness of heart, he never restricted access to himself to anyone. His room was always full of idle officers who discussed and spread news about any issues, even those confidential. And so you see here, very lax atmosphere, which was not con- was not conducive to a successful military operations. Uh, after the 1812 campaign, Wittgenstein went on to uh, actually uh, serve uh, in the Russian army for for no- for another uh, decade. Uh, and the last major campaign that he served was in 1828 against the Turks. But by that time, he was already um, old, uh, relatively old, and he was in bad uh, health. And so um, he was actually overshadowed by a much younger uh, chief of staff uh, who actually removed him from command. And uh, Wittgenstein, realizing that he essentially becomes a nominal head of the army, uh, resigned from the command. And so he spent the last days of his life at his estate and he died in 1843. So that is the story of Wittgenstein. But probably the more interesting and fascinating guy is uh, Russian Admiral Chichagov uh, that uh, is so so much maligned and criticized uh, uh, for his role in 1812. As Chichagov uh, is uh, is known or infamous for his role in at the, at the event in Paris. But, and as, uh, he, as his title, Admiral, indicates, he's not actually a general. He's not a land commander as such, but he's rather a graduate of the famous naval cadet corps in, in Russia, and he spent most of his uh, life serving in the Russian Navy. He actually served uh, with the English in 1790 uh, in the Royal Navy, uh, where he went uh, for training. Uh, and uh, coming back to Russia in 1801, he became a close friend with Alexander. Uh, and so Alexander actually trusted him a lot, and uh, Chichagov uh, was known for for being a free thinker, uh, for for expressing his ideas, his his uh, uh, his um, 
thoughts rather blandly, and Alexander actually liked that. And so he appointed Chichagov as a minister of navy in 1807, uh, although essentially, although technically uh, Chichagov supervised the navy since 1802, but official appointment came in 1807. And so from 1807 until 1811, uh, Chichagov actually is rather instrumental in reorganizing Russian navy, trying to purge it from corruption, trying to uh, streamline it, and as a result he earns... Uh, uh, actually, uh, a lot of enemies, and uh, which which try to undermine his position uh, at the court. Then, in 1812, a very important event takes place. Right before Napoleon's invasion of Russia, and as Russia was preparing for the attack, uh, of course, Russians wanted to secure the flanks, and they had to, uh, a major war, a long-standing war with uh, with Ottoman Empire. And uh, General Kutuzov, you know, uh, whom we discussed last time, Kutuzov was commanding Turk, uh, Russian troops against the Turks in, in, in the south, and Kutuzov was tasked with ending the war as soon as possible. And uh, in, in, this, in the fall of 1811, he finally defeated the uh, Turks uh, decisively and was trying to force them to sign peace treaty, which the Turks uh, very shrewdly were refusing to sign because they they knew about the impending invasion of Russia, and of course Turks wanted to uh, be time, wait, and see what happens to Russia. And so Kutuzov, you know, the weeks go by, Kutuzov is unable to convince uh, uh, Turks to sign peace treaty, and Alexander decides to appoint Chichagov in place of Kutuzov. And so here you have this interesting situation where Kutuzov actually is informed secretly by some by uh, his supporters uh, and who were Chichagov's enemies at the same time that uh, Chichagov is coming to replace him. And so he's very angry at Chichagov. Uh, he's, the last thing he wants to, to see Chichagov is to steal his glory of signing the peace treaty. And so Kutuzov uh, actually does his best. He pressures, he sweet talks uh, Turks to accept the peace treaty. And actually, the peace treaty, which is signed in May of 1812, the, uh, the Treaty of Bucharest, is actually not very beneficial to Russia. The Russians had to give up uh, most of their gains in the last six years. But at least Kutuzov claims the success. And so when Chichagov arrives uh, to the uh, Russian army in the Danubian principalities, he's now empty, you know, he's, <laughs> he's left empty-handed. You know, the peace is signed. Kutuzov uh, surrenders the command to Chichagov and leaves. And so Chichagov now is stuck as this uh, uh, admiral in charge of the army. But what is important about this is that Kutuzov, both Chichagov and Kutuzov felt slighted by this incident. They, uh, the, Chichagov felt that he was robbed of fame, uh, of, of being a victor, uh, while Kutuzov uh, scorned this upstart who almost deprived him of this fame. And so when Chichagov joined the army, he started to uh, inspect, uh, audit the army. And what he found was that Kutuzov actually mismanaged the army. He was, uh, uh, as, as uh, actually uh, Chichagov reports to, uh, to, uh, to the emperor, he, he, he writes about Kutuzov being more uh, interested in his mistress uh, rather than uh, uh, the army. He talks about Kutuzov actually <laughs> exiling a member of the governing council of the region, uh, because he was a husband of one of his mistresses. And so he reveals that Kutuzov actually uh, mismanaged some of the funds of the army. And so what happens is that creates this animosity between the two guys, uh, between let me, the two generals. Let me, let me interrupt just briefly. I mean, we can all sort of chuckle about uh, 
you know, Kutuzov looking after his mistress and getting rid of the husband and so on. Was there any evidence that you know of that, that Kutuzov was doing anything uh, uh, to, 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 illegal to 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 make money out of this was it just mismanagement because he was looking after his mistress and not paying attention to things or or was he taking a a little bit off of the bottom as well no there is no evidence that he was uh he was personally you know he was benefiting from his mismanagement it's more of a case uh in the last uh podcast when we talk about kutuza i mentioned a quote when one of the contemporaries described that Kutuzov was oftentimes so lazy that he would sign anything that people, his secretaries, would give him, sure, so sure. without reading it, and so that that bred that mismanagement, where Kutuzov would sign off the on the orders or sign off on the documents that uh, others used to to abuse or used to profit, but um, Kutuzov himself is not, you know, accused of mismanagement because he's actually from a rather prominent and wealthy family so it's not that he he needs money uh, but sure. he he's certainly interested in in, in women uh, well but, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that <laughs> well as long as long as you manage the army well too you got well, you have true. to have a skill <laughs> that's true that's true but uh, what why I selected Chagov is because um uh, he's, uh, I feel, uh, unjustly uh, criticized and condemned by the uh, by by con- both contemporaries and the later generations. Uh, and in my book, uh, my forthcoming book, actually, I try to to bring justice to his uh, legacy, trying to explain why what happened to him. Uh, and he's a very interesting guy. Uh, he's actually praised by one of uh, by one of their uh, contemporaries as one of the most rem- quote one of the most remarkable men in Russia. Nowadays, there is no one here, uh, meaning in Russia, to equal him in judgment, sharpness of intellect, strength of character, sense of justice, impartiality, even austerity of morals. And so uh, this is actually a problem uh, because if you look at this description, we talk about strength of character, sense of justice, impartiality. And so what happens is when Chichagov becomes the minister of Navy, he actually wants to purge Navy of the corrupt officials, wants to streamline bureaucracy, which the local, the existing administration doesn't want to accept. Uh, Of course, they don't want to surrender their power. And so he's described as this, uh, uh, quote, Jacobin, uh, or uh, another uh, moniker, very derogatory, is liberal, uh, that is thrown at Chichagov at the time. And the other problem is that Chichagov, as I already mentioned, actually liked to express himself openly. And so if he thought about if something about the person, he would tell him in, straight in, in his face. He's a very uh, outspoken man. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite uh, points about him is that as a young man, when he's uh, still in early 1800s, when he's just appointed to supervise the Navy, he, uh, and that is at 1802, 1803, he actually is uh, very fond of Napoleon. And he's so fond of Napoleon that he actually has a, uh, he, he has a bust of Napoleon in his office. Uh, I knew I liked this guy. <laughs> <laughs> that changes when after Napoleon proclaims himself emperor and then Napoleon, uh, Russia declares war on, uh, on Napoleon in 1805. But uh, people remember that. And so when in 1812 Chichagov is tasked with fighting Napoleon, people are you know, talking behind the back that how can we trust this guy? This is the same guy who had Napoleon's bust in his office. 
and uh, and so what happens is uh, at Berezina, which we'll probably discuss uh, in a bit, uh, is that at Berezina, where Chichagov actually uh, is, uh, fr- you know, in my opinion, and in my book, I make this strong argument in favor of is uh, is uh, is uh, misled by Kutuzov and Wittgenstein into doing something that. Uh, that uh, was detrimental to the Russian army. Uh, he is blamed. He's used as a scapegoat for the for this, and uh, the rest of his life, starting in 1813, he spends in exile. In uh, it's an involuntary. It's a voluntary exile, but still, he never returns back home. He loses everything, all the property, all the medals. He, uh, he loses it, and so he dies in France, where he's buried. Now, let me ask you uh, uh, maybe a silly question. You said that. Uh Chikagov was was uh, a good friend to 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 Emperor Alexander. Uh, how is it that he could fall on such hard times, even to the point of losing all of his medals and and so on? Uh, did Alexander just become completely disgusted with him? Did did did, did that friendship uh, do him no good in the final analysis? Um, actually, uh, no. no. Uh, what happens is, while Alexander is alive, uh, well, let me put it this way: um, uh, Chichagov. There is a, uh, this uh, major attempt to remove Chichagov, him, starting actually. 1803, or even when he's still a deputy minister of navy, then even when he's minister of navy, and throughout those years, Alexander stuck by him. He he said that he trusted uh, Chichagov, that he um, appreciated his opinion. Then in 1812, uh, when after Berezina, when uh, Kutuzov act, intentionally blames um, Chichagov for the for the failure of the Russian operations there, uh, Alexander still actually defends him. He still refuses to dismiss him outright. But it is public opinion that is so vicious of Chichagov that forces Chichagov to resign from his command on the basis of uh, poor health, which is probably one of the most uh, used uh, excuses yes. for re- resignation. <laughs> and so yes. he, Alexander, has to accept it because of public opinion, because Chichagov himself tells him that I want to, I, you know, I just don't want to serve anymore. And he goes to France or, uh, later on. But what uh, Alexander actually allows him to keep his property, to keep all the medals, to keep uh, his uh, actually seat in the in the state council, which is one of the highest bodies in Russia. What changes is after Alexander dies in 1825, uh, wow. Nicholas is uh, is more uh, conservative, and so he issues an order that prohibits Russians to reside in the in in the in the West, reside outside Russia for long periods of time. And so they had, the Russian nobles had to come back to Russia and uh, Chichagov refuses to come back. And so in, re- in return, uh, his property is, re- is uh, confiscated. And uh, Chichagov is so disgusted with that that he actually packs all his medals and sent back to Nicholas. Why did he refuse to come back uh, at running the risk of losing all of his lands and titles? Because of that uh, public opinion that was so critical of him, and uh, uh, he uh, right away after uh, after the 1812, after the Berezina, he's he's uh, the uh, public enemy number one in Russia. Sure, uh, sure. Because of let, you know they supposedly letting Napoleon escape, and so he, everyone is, hates him, and he's low. But this is a decade later. I just I was I was thinking I'm just putting myself in his shoes, and I'm thinking, well, let's see. I can be unpopular, but I can hole up in my mansion with all of my titles and, and, and personal wealth. 
uh, or I can stay in France. Now, presumably, he had quite a bit of money with him, you know, but, uh, you know, it's just, it just seems a pretty, a pretty tough thing to do. Yeah, but it, it probably speaks of his, uh, his uh, principle, right? The, uh, sure. His character that he, uh, he actually decides to stay in France instead of going back and fa- of, uh, uh, of living in, in a society that hates him. And uh, uh, he actually, uh, right away, uh, in 1815, just three years after Berezina, uh, actually less than three years, he already starts writing uh, a, mem- a booklet that, it was, that was published in London uh, in order to justify his actions. Uh, and so that booklet actually caused an uproar in some respect in Russia because it blamed Kutuzov for mishandling the operation. And so Kutuzov by now is dead, but he's also a national hero. And so it sure. seems like this Chichagov, uh, a French-speaking, Napoleon-loving <laughs> right, guy is attacking <laughs> national hero. It's that only uh, exacerbates the problem. And uh, he he had enough money to to well to live well in France. He actually bought a chateau uh, at uh, at Sur, which is a small place <laughs> not far from Paris, and uh, that's where yes. he lived with his brother and his daughter, who was uh, well married into a, to a French nobleman. Well, he didn't miss any meals. That's good to hear. Any anyone who had a a bust of uh, Napoleon in his room, I I want to see them do well. So that's. Uh that's good. So, who else do you have for us? I think we, you, probably another another uh, man that you'll you'll probably like is uh, uh, General Alexei Yermolov. He is uh, one of the most capable uh, art- artillery commanders in the Russian army. He's uh, he served with distinction in Caucasus, in Poland, in seventy nineties, and then distinguished himself as one of the uh, horse artillery commanders uh, during the first co- the war of for, uh, third coalition in eighteen o five. Uh, then he fought with distinction in Poland in 1806-1807 and actually was a hero of Eilau, uh, where uh, there is this incident where uh, the, in, during the Battle of Eilau, listeners might remember, uh, a Russian artillery was redeployed very successfully, very skillfully at a critical moment uh, that stopped uh, Davout's attack. And sure. so that success was actually accredited to a young man by the name of Kutaisov. But it was actually Yermolov who did who did it in reality. And so he was... He was uh, not reward, properly rewarded, which stayed with him for many years. Mm-hmm. His life and career is actually full of twists and turns, and he's a very complex personality. Uh, Alexander Griboedov, which is a famous, who is famous Russian uh, writer, uh, who knew him quite well, and even him, and even Griboedov describes him as a modern sphinx. And uh, Pushkin, uh, Alexander Pushkin, was one of the early admirers of Yermolov. And he was baffled by his character, and so he didn't know how to describe him. And so he described him both as a, quote, tiger's head on Hercules' body, but also as a great charlatan. And so (laughs) the reason for that difference of opinion is that uh, Yermolov is uh, is a free thinker. He's very shrewd, very perceptive, but also a very uh, conniving and skimming individual. Uh, In 1812, for example, during that famous... uh, 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 conflict between uh, Barclay de Tolly and Bagration, Yermolov is uh, is stuck in between. Uh, he's chief of staff to Barclay de Tolly, but he's a good friend of Bagration, and so he writes secret letters to Bagration, inciting him to uh, to lobby uh, Alexander to uh, to dismiss Barclay de Tolly. And so you see, you know, re- when you read his letters, you see how he tries to nudge Bagration into moving into you know against Barclay de Tolly. 
But at the same time, he's a this great Russian patriot, a great symbol for Russian nationalism. And he famously this, uh, uh, exclaimed once that the feeling of being a Russian, a true Russian, never leaves me. Uh, and he, what he hates is in that the Russian army has a, a large number, a large con, uh, contingent of German officers. And these are Prussians, Hanoverians, uh, uh, Mecklenburgians, and so on. And so sure. he hates the fact that ger- this German spirit hangs over Russia. And um, <laughs> once uh, uh, Alexander, Emperor Alexander, asked him, uh, asked Yermolov what favor he would like as a reward for his services. And Yermolov famously replied, uh, quote, to make me a German so I can get whatever I want in the army. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's also very, uh, he, he knows about problems Russian army faces and Russian society had at the time. And so one of my favorite stories about Yermolov is that when he retired, uh, Yermolov uh, hung actually a ro- large portrait of Napoleon behind the chair in his study. Mm-hmm. So when a, f- a friend of his uh, came now, to who, see him... Who would do yeah, anything but, like that? Uh, <laughs> who would? <laughs> yeah, I now, wonder. Who, who, who would have a who would have images of the emperor behind his chair in his I, library? I, I suggest turning around in your chair. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> anyway, go on with your story. <laughs> so uh, Yermolov actually has this large portrait of Napoleon hang behind his the chair in his study, and so a friend of his uh, came in one day, and he, they sit down, and they talk, and. Uh, a friend of his, of course, couldn't couldn't resist asking, "How come that Yermolov, the who spent almost a decade fighting Napoleon, has this uh, portrait behind him?" And so Yermolov uh, told him, "Quote: Because while alive, he was accustomed to only seeing our backs as we ran from him." <laughs> so it's very self-deprecating humor that Yermolov has. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, Yermolov's name is uh, after the end of Napoleonic Wars. He, he becomes famous because uh, he's sent to serve in the Caucasus. And so here he spends almost a decade uh, and his name became a byword for uh, the famous or infamous conflict in Chechnya where he actually starts this brutal conflict in Chechnya by using uh, very harsh uh, uh, means uh, in, to subjugate the local tribes. And so he he actually uh, spent, you know he 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 initiates a system where he builds fortresses and fortified lines that gradually force Chechens to agree to the Russian rule. And the interesting now, story this, about yes, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. The interesting story about uh, uh, this is that uh, he's is he's widely hated in Chechnya to the present day. He's he looked at, at this imperialist uh, who tried to subjugate uh, Chechens. And so during Soviet times, uh, uh, there was a monument uh, to Yermolov in the capital of Chechnya, the city of Grozny, which actually uh, Yermolov established as a fortress. And so uh, periodically, uh, Chechens uh, would uh, actually blow the monument up during the night. And so but it, it came, uh, it, it's just when it happened several times, uh, the Russian authorities were so fed up that they actually made uh, several copies of the monument. And so every time it would blown up during the night, the, the replacement by morning so that <laughs> when the people woke up in the morning, they would notice that the, that the monument was destroyed. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. Now, I, well, the question I was starting to ask you is: uh, is is uh, uh, Yermolov's uh, actions in Chechnya is that is that the beginning of the 
the conflict that we see there now, or or was that just uh, you know one of the the uh, events of, of a much longer conflict? It's pro- you can argue in both ways. So you can argue that it is a flare up, a major flare up in a long-standing conflict uh, because Russians were have been trying to. Ex- expanding the North Caucasus uh, throughout the late 18th century. But what happens is the means and the way Yermolov approaches to uh, to the issue in Chechnya is that he uses extreme brutality, uh, collective punishment, for example, the, you know, de- destroying entire villages, burning the, uh, villages to the ground, establishing fortified settlements, and he actually selects very... Uh, you know, flamboyant names like Grozny or uh, Burna, you know, they like uh, that you know, express this sentiment uh, of power. Uh, and, uh, and so you can trace the conflict in Chechnya specifically to this, uh, to the two year Molov that, you know, he starts an intensive phase. And of course, that conflict then exacerbates and explodes in the famous uh, Chechen wars in, 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 in the later decades, in 1830s and 40s. That's very interesting. Do you have uh, maybe one more uh, general you want to tell us about, or or are we pretty much generaled out here? I think, yeah, I think we generaled out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I can can tell our listeners that there's – there's quite a few more on 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 the list, and of course, it's just like with the French generals or any of the other generals. We could come up with well, you know ever ever expanding lists of folks, but but I want to thank you very much, Alex, for the 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 opportunity you've given a lot of our listeners to uh, to hear about some of these people. Uh, only a few names of which were I suspect that all familiar to. To all but a very very tiny uh, minority of, of of our listeners, and and quite frankly, only a handful of, of whom I knew, uh, you know, very much about at all. And and in front of you, I'm hesitant to even use the term, you know, very much uh, to 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 uh, re- in, in regard to my uh, uh, knowledge. But uh, one thing I thought we might do is is go back a little bit to where we were. Uh, earlier, and uh, and take a look at the 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 single most exciting episode, arguably in in the eighteen twelve conflict, certainly in the withdrawal, and that's the the crossing of 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 the Berezina. Uh, most historians, most amateur historians, and 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 readers, and certainly listeners uh, to our uh, podcast uh, know that. That, that this is considered one of the 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 great uh, French triumphs that uh, in spite of all of the disasters of the of the withdrawal all of the difficulties with the the Russian army the Russian peasants uh, the irregulars uh, uh, the Cossacks and so on uh, uh, and in spite of the fact that uh, you know much of the pontoon uh, uh, building equipment had been destroyed just days uh, before. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, when when the French engineers were given this task, uh, uh, they they rose to the occasion and built these bridges. Uh, and and an awful lot of soldiers and quite a few other folks managed to get across to to safety and then made their way. On into Poland. Uh, that's that's the way 
most people know it, and it's not an inaccurate statement, I think, to say that the 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 the, the French army, you know, managed to really, you know, pull one off here. Uh, and, and great kudos, certainly to the engineers and perhaps to Napoleon uh, as well. Uh, but looking at it from from the Russian point of view and from the research that that you have done, uh, is there anything uh, that that sort of encapsulized image that we have of the crossing of the Berezina, is there anything that that leaves out that you think we we ought to really know about? Yes. um, um, For the past two years, actually, I have been digging through the Russian archives on on this matter, and uh, I was uh, lucky enough to travel to France last year. I did some uh, research in the French archives, and uh, I was... uh, uh, very fortunate, you know, live, to live in this digital age where you can talk to some of the archives uh, in in Netherlands, in Germany, and actually they were um, you know, very gracious to send me some documents from different countries. And so um, I have about uh, do, you know I compiled documents from about half a dozen countries. And so uh, what I what as a, what I discover is uh, uh, although you know I, I agree it was a, uh, a success, a great success for for the French. Uh, Although I don't, in my book, actually, I don't use the term French as such. I, I refer to the army as Allied Army. Sure, and, 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 and by the way, that's obviously much more accurate. Right. I, I agree that uh, you know, although you know, it, it is uh, very handy to refer to the army to them as French, but I think it's, it does justice to those uh, Dutch, for example, Dutch engineers that are all, all but forgotten, uh, who actually you know. Uh, who built the bridges? You know, they were not French, mm-hmm. but the Dutch or the Polish engineers who built the other bridge, and uh, and so I tried to do to to give them credit for it. But what I find and what I argue in my book is that uh, Brettel, uh, the crossing of Berezina actually is uh, is not a, a good moment for Napoleon. If you t- if you look at him as a commander, it actually is one of the weakest points for him. Uh, you may praise the fr- uh, the Allied troops who fought heroically. You may praise some of the generals, like Eble, you may praise Udino, you can praise Ney. But uh, Napoleon, when it comes to Napoleon, actually, I think it's one of his weakest moments during Napoleonic Wars. How so? Well, if you look at, uh, you know, it starts in, uh, even, it starts at Orsha. I mean, if you look at the immediate, uh, uh, immediate, uh, immediately before the crossing. At Orsha, he, he famously issues the order to destroy the pontoon bridges. Uh, and uh, which is, uh, as as we all know, was carried out. And yet, the reason for for doing that is to alleviate the uh, the army to to make it to move to make it move faster. So he destroys pontoon bridges, but he doesn't destroy all the carriages, or he doesn't destroy all those private uh, transport wagons that are following the army. Wouldn't be it more uh, reasonable to destroy first carriages or wagons? And then pontoon bridges, especially expecting that there will be a river to cross. Second is that um, Napoleon is often credited with uh, with selecting the crossing site, and actually it's not correct. Napoleon has a very limited role in that. Uh, he actually wants to cross the river in, in a different in different place and to the north of it. And it actually, it is Udino's decision uh, on on a local commander who is on the spot who decides to do it on at Studianka. Uh, and cross it. The third moment is that when Napoleon actually, when he comes to Berezino, he's rather indecisive. He stands there, he does, uh, literally, he does 
nothing. He stands and stands. And you see these memoirs describing him. Yes, his personal presence is very expiring. Very, uh, you have the, the I, I used, uh, I read uh, about three uh, Swiss memoirs where you know, the Swiss troops are describing how the effect Napoleon has on them that, that these people, the Swiss troops are crossing with cheers of you know, Vive l'Empereur. But at the same time, Napoleon makes no tactical disposition. Napoleon does nothing. Actually, it's Udino and Ney that make decisions on, that call, you know, to use the expression, who call the shots. It is Ney and Udino who fight. It is, uh, it is uh, Victor who defends Studianka. N- Napoleon is out there. He has very limited involvement in the battle. And so, uh, you know, if you look at all of this, you can, you can credit his generals, you can credit his troops, but not Napoleon himself. Well, let me ask you this: uh, To some extent, wouldn't you expect? And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be apologetic for Napoleon. I'm, I, and, and, and some of the research that I've done, and, and some of the articles and, and papers that I've presented, including in Russia, uh, I've, I've criticized Napoleon for being indecisive and, and not being able to uh, to make decisions in, in, in a timely manner. Uh, quite frankly, especially going in. Uh, to to Russia, there was a number of times that we we've talked about this when we when we talked about the campaign earlier, uh, where where Napoleon you know, sat in his hands too long, and, and including what one could argue, I'm sure, in in in, in Moscow itself. Uh, but when you are in uh, uh, the middle of a campaign like this, uh, isn't it at least somewhat reasonable for you to assign subordinates uh, the response? And ordering and and and, uh, and 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 making some some decisions based on what they have learned about the the, the lay of the land, if you if if you will, is is that unreasonable, or or do you think that Napoleon really, in fact, should have been uh, more individually involved? Yeah, that's that's my argument. Is that Napoleon, you know, from what I you know from my what from what I look at in from his correspondence, from the orders, from the correspondence with his generals, he's not as involved or as he you know judging from the seriousness of the situation, he's not as involved as he should be, or at least when when especially at Berezina, uh, he is uh, as you know seems. Uh, uh, indecisive, probably is the word. Uh, there is this famous incident, uh, not famous uh, uh, moment when, of course, uh, they are building the bridges and they are very concerned what will happen and they think that they are lost. And of course, Mira and Ney has this famous ex- exchange where you know they talk about being lost. This is uh, that they fail, and they look at Napoleon, and of course, he sits and you know he is very chagrined. And Ney famously says that if we survive, it, you know. It will prove that Napoleon has sold his soul to devil, but <laughs> there is a, there is nothing else to it. Actually, you know, Napoleon. It's more his generals, it's more his marshals that you know do the fighting. There is no tactical dispositions that Napoleon is involved. And you you you, you may try to explain it by you know saying that the army was in bad shape and so on and so on, but uh, it, 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 looking how Napoleon was described. It's in how his role was uh, uh, described in this battle that, you know, especially in recent years, the descriptions that, you know, Berezina is the masterful uh, the victory of, of Napoleon or that, you know, he's uh, single-handedly outmaneuvers Russians. That is not true. Uh, if anything, uh, I have this uh, uh, a very, uh, my favorite quote about the, um, 
from the Berezina is uh, that although you can, of course, describe Berezina as, uh, uh, as, uh, as a military victory, but uh, one in a historian noted, and I agree with him, that if, quote, if getting the remnant of the Grand Army across the Berezina with he very heavy loss through the enemy commander's mismanagement, mismanaging badly, be a masterpiece, what epithets are to be attached to Austerlitz of Friedland? And <laughs> it's true. Well, and that's I I I, I agree. Uh, the uh, the 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 epithets going the other way, of course, in the case of of of, of, of Austerlitz uh, and Friedland. Uh, I'm I, I'm not one to say that Napoleon should get the the the, the lion's share of the credit. Uh, uh, perhaps not very much of the credit at all. But I do think that it was quite an accomplishment for uh, the Grand Armée uh, to to uh, achieve. Uh, what it did. Now, you you mentioned in your quote, uh, as a result of mismanagement uh, of, in this case, on, on the Russian side. What what did the Russians do wrong? What what could Kutuzov or or some other commander have done to have prevented the, the Grand Armée from from having this, uh, frankly, in, in my in my opinion, significant accomplishment in in that it did preserve. You know what was left of the Grand Armée. It did make it possible for Napoleon and and what was left to to in fact to eventually make it to safety, at least temporary safety. Uh, but yet I agree with this quote. I've always had the sense that that the Russians had so much going for them that they should have been able to stop this from happening. So 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 what happened uh, that they didn't? Well, actually, in my book, which is the first book that deals fully with the Russian side, in my book, which I book, make an which, argument. Which book is this again? This is the Napoleon's Great Escape, uh, the crossing of the Berezina River, uh, and uh, it, it should be it should be out in uh, in, in the fall of, of of this year. And in that book, actually, I make an argument that. It's not uh, the proper description of the battle will be not that it is a, a French victory, but it is a Russian failure. Because even if Napoleon had tried, he would, you know, he would have suffered a much worse fate if Russians had done what they envisioned uh, to, to, in the beginning. And what they envisioned is that uh, following the Battle of Borodino uh, in in, the, in September of 1812. Uh, they developed a plan uh, known as the St. Petersburg Plan that called for Kutuzov pushing Napoleon to the west, uh, Wittgenstein coming from the north, and then Chichagov coming from the south, and these three pincer movements to crash Napoleon uh, on the banks of Berezina River. And so that was the plan that was developed by Alexander, uh, in in, this, in September of 1812, the problem with this plan is that uh, it was de developed actually in response to the news of Borodino, and it's not the news that we expected uh, or we uh, we we were, we usually hear. Uh, we all, we describe Borodino nowadays as Napoleon's victory, but we also know that Kutuzov certainly didn't didn't think that way, or at least he didn't want society, Russian society, to believe that way. And so his first reports from Borodino described it as a decisive Russian victory. And so when the news of it reached Pet you know, St. Petersburg, actually there is this major celebration. And uh, at the time, actually, uh, uh, American ambassador to Russia is John Quincy Adams, the future president. And uh, he actually writes uh, that uh, there are illuminations going on throughout the city. 
and uh, you know, city is in 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 a great uh, in in a very festive mood. Then two days later, you know, uh, when Alexander hears about this, of course, he thinks that's it. Napoleon is defeated, so we have to counterattack and press him uh, out of Russia. And so he develops this plan, which he sends to Kutuzov. The problem is that is uh, it's the plan is based on a lie, uh, to be to be blunt. And when the full extent of the rush of the Battle of Borodino and the real, real picture emerges, it becomes clear that uh, the Saint Petersburg plan cannot be implemented at that moment. But it is still is uh, Alexander still insists on its main, on its uh, uh, execution. And so what Kutuzov does, he actually ignores it. At the same time, this plan is also sent to Chichagov at Wittgenstein, and so they actually are starting following this plan. And the problem with the plan is that the plan actually specifically outlines where the armies should be on exact time frame. Let's say in you know on the, in early October, all three armies should be specific places. Then by mid October they should be here. By late October they should be here, and so they will be able to capture Napoleon. But if only two armies are working, or if only one army is following the plan, and the two armies are not following that. That allows the French or the Allies to deal with these Russian armies piecemeal. So that is the first problem. Second problem is uh, we already talked about Chichagov when we had seen that the, he has very tense relationship with Kutuzov, and Kutuzov, in fact, actively uh, uh, I, I don't want to say undermines, but it seems that he undermines Chichagov. Uh, what he does, actually, uh, uh, Denis Davidov has a very, very interesting uh, passage in his uh, memoirs where he writes that Kutuzov would often send letters, uh, news, uh, uh, recent intelligence to Chichagov, backdating the, uh, the letters. So well, let's say uh, today is 6th of May. And so what Kutuzov would do is he will, back, he will send it much later and then backdate the, the letter. And so by the time Chichagov received the news, they were already outdated and unusable. So Chichagov complained about this. Uh, he thought that Kutuzov was sending them on, on, on time. And so he will be very critical of the messengers. You know, he will be telling them, where, where, have, where have you been? Why you didn't deliver it in time? And so messengers, of course, didn't know, you know, couldn't say anything. Why, where, the, where they have been? The reality was that the, the date was already wrong, uh, uh, put uh, uh, intentionally, uh, a wrong, uh, intentionally a wrong date was placed on the letter. Then... The most important, uh, uh, the most important factor takes place right in, in the week before the crossing. Uh, Kutuzov uh, hears about uh, uh, Napoleon's uh, uh, intention, which is uh, actually a wrong, in, uh, a false information, but Kutuzov believes it. That could, Napoleon probably will be turning from Orsha, uh, which Orsha is about days march from Smolensk. That Napoleon will be marching from Orsha, not to the west, but to the southwest. And so he writes to Chichagov telling him, listen, this is the information I have. The, the basis for this information actually is Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein tells Kutuzov, I think Napoleon is marching to southwest. Well, both Wittgenstein and Kutuzov have no basis for this information. They have no, true, no good intelligence, but they assume that this is, this is what happens. And so Wittgenstein writes to Kutuzov, Kutuzov writes to Chichagov. Chichagov then writes to Wittgenstein telling him, listen, I have this information that Napoleon might be going to southwest. To which Wittgenstein says, hey, I have the same information. And so Chichagov 
that, hey, I have these two orders or two sets of information, one coming from Wittgenstein, one coming from Kutuzov. Well, both of them should be well informed, especially Kutuzov. He's the commander-in-chief. So I think probably I should, allow, I should listen to him. And so right on the eve of the crossing, uh, he receives these two you know, letters that are very important, which force him, you know, Kutuzov specifically tells him to go to South to watch Napoleon's attempt to break in southwestern direction. And so that is what makes Chachicharov to decide to go south. Not Napoleon's, or you know, uh, it is often described as Napoleon's uh, uh, diversion at Ucholodi, which in reality is actually Udino's diversion. Not that, actually, that is a very minor thing. But it is Kutuzov's insistence, Kutuzov's letter, Wittgenstein's letter that forces Chichagov to switch his direction to a different direction. And so that is, that is the, the root of this problem. Well, that's very, very interesting. So, so because of mistakes that were made by Napoleon, he's in trouble. And because of mistakes made by uh, the Russians, he's, Napoleon's able to at least to some extent get out of trouble. So, uh, Absolutely. Uh, it shows you the absolutely. nature of warfare, I guess. Yes, the fog of war, absolutely. Uh, just imagine if Napoleon at Studyanka faced not just a couple of thousand of uh, couple thousand Russians, which even those were withdrawn by the morning of 26th of November, but just imagine if uh, he faced all 35,000 Russian troops of Chichagov. And imagine if Wittgenstein acted more vigorously. Uh, there is this problem also, for example... Uh, Wittgenstein has uh, instructions that when he came in direct contact, when he established direct communication with Chichagov, he would have to surrender his authority to Chichagov. That is, he would have to follow orders from Chichagov, which Wittgenstein hates. He hates the whole notion that he has to follow orders of an admiral. So what he does, he drags his feet. He doesn't. He doesn't do. Uh, he doesn't act as uh, fast as he should have done. Uh, when Chichagov asks him for support. Wittgenstein ignores it. And so here you, know, you see these personal problems that, <laughs> that are very, pro- very interesting. Another important problem is, for example, is during the battle itself, during the crossing, uh, there is uh, the Russian, the Chichagov's army is stretched from Studyanka in the north to uh, Nizhny Borodino, which is about 50 miles down in the south. Uh, but uh, there is about 5,000 troops at Studyanka, about 5,000 troops at Borisov itself, and then most of the Chichagov's troops in the south. Well, when the, when, when the news arrived that Napoleon is already building bridges and crossing them, uh, the local commander, uh, his name is Chaplitz, writes a message to Langeron, another Russian commander who is in Borisov, saying that, listen, I see the bridges being constructed. What should I do? And so Langeron sends it to uh, Chichagov. Chichagov writes back and says, well, we have to, uh, you have to, he writes back directly to Chaplitz saying that you have to stay there, you have to prevent the crossing. The problem is the message is sent directly to Chaplitz and not to Langeron. And so Langeron, despite having a first-hand information that there is a crossing, decides to insist on a much earlier order which called for a movement to the south. So here you have Langeron, a very experienced general, who has two sets of information. One is an old one that tells him to go south, and then the new one that is coming from his subordinate that tells him, I see, I, I physically see the, the bridge being built. And Langeron decides to insist on the 
on following the first set of orders. And, and, and why do you think that would be? I mean, this is a little bit like march to the sound of, of the guns. Maybe this is march to the sound of the hammers as they're building <laughs> these, these bridges. I mean, my goodness. I mean, he can, he, if he knows that the, the Grand Armée is, is, is getting away, why would he move his army away from the Grand Armée? Well, the reason for that is that he actually, um, he received, uh, on it's a morning of 26, uh, and uh, that day he tried to cross the river uh, three times. He sent a small groups of Langeron, sent three groups of uh, Jaegers to cross the river to see where the French are indeed located. And so three times he's repulsed. And so he is concerned that maybe the, most of the troops are in front of him. And so he, he, he thinks, what if I indeed follow, agree with my... Uh, with my subordinate, I follow his his uh, information, move to the north, and in reality, that was a diversion. And so he stays in in he stays in position. And what his problem is, and why is why I'm so critical of him, is that even when Chichagov tells sends him uh, information that um, Chaplitz might be right, Langeron ignores it. He's still concerned about his position, and so he's he shows himself rather indecisively in this moment. And I, I agree with you, and I'm still, you know, m- maybe I'm just naive, but I'm thinking it can't be a diversion if there are bridges built and soldiers moving across them. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not a diversion, ladies and gentlemen. That's the Grand Armée escaping. And if, and if you have a, a possibility of putting a few heavy guns and, and firing in their general direction, if that's all you can do, you know, that's, that's something, uh, you know. But, Absolutely. Uh, I, I guess from Absolute. from my from my point of view, I'm glad he didn't. But it 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 seems like a you know an an we we sometimes are critical of of uh, some of the uh, French marshals for for b- bonehead moves. It strikes me that was a bonehead move. Yes, uh, and um, Langeron actually threatens Chaplitz, the the person who actually insists on insists on staying on Studianka and trying to stop uh, the Grand Armée with his couple thousand troops. He actually threatens him with court martial if he is not if he if he continues to uh, disobey his uh, orders. And so Chaplitz decides, well, uh, I I better move. So he moves south, and that is the that is the moment when they cross the river. Napoleon is standing, and he can't believe his eyes uh, that the Russian troops are moving south. And he exclaims famously, "I fooled Chichagov, right? I fooled the admiral." In reality, he didn't fool the admiral. It's the Russians fooled themselves. <laughs> well, on that note, my friend, we had talked about uh, doing. Uh, you know some other uh, elements of the of of the campaign and the Holy Crusade, but uh, uh, I think we may uh, want to put that off uh, for another day. And, it will be uh, my pleasure. I hope uh, I hope the leaders uh, the listeners don't mind uh, it <laughs> coming me oh, coming I'm, back week after week. I'm sure the listeners will be will be delighted, and we might get you on with somebody else along the line, but. But uh, I think once we start talking about the Holy Crusade of, of Emperor Alexander, we, we, we might uh, uh, be going a bridge too far, as it were. Uh, so I want to thank Alexander. Uh, and now if uh, somebody will wake Cameron up, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put an end to this. I'm here. Which, which Alexander uh, do you want to thank, the emperor or the, uh, <laughs> the, the historian? <laughs> 
Well, I want to I want to thank the 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 Russian army for letting Napoleon escape, and I want to thank Alexander for uh, Mikhailovsky for telling us that story. <laughs> and I also, but ladies and gentlemen, I, I I don't know if you've pieced all of these little pieces of a different puzzle together here, but in in the course of our discussions with 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 our Alexander as opposed to the Emperor Alexander, uh, we have heard. About you know his book on the Russian officer corps. We've heard about uh, uh, his his uh, book on on Bagration. Uh, we've heard about his brand new book uh, on 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 Borodino. And and now I'm hearing, and I'm a good friend of his, and I am now hearing for the first time that he's about to come out with yet another book with uh, archival material from about six or seven different countries. Uh, uh, on the crossing of the of the Berezina, uh, Alexander, we could do a whole hour with you just explaining how it is you managed to find the time and the energy and the material for all of of, of this really truly exciting work that you're doing. Uh, I'm I am absolutely amazed at how prodigiously you are are doing your research and 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 again, as I've said countless times. Uh, the, the work that you're doing is making an enormous contribution uh, to the field of Napoleonic studies. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing here. Uh, my, 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 wife, my wife is not sharing your enthusiasm about this because uh, she feels like, as Elting, you know, famous uh, uh, historian John Elting, described you know, his wife, the last widow of Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> I think my wife feels like it because of the lonely evening that she spends. I'm, I, I, I I knew John Elting very well, and, and, and he, he was one of the great gentlemen of our profession, uh, but he was wrong. His wife was by widow of the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> Bar- Barbara, Barbara would, would jump in on that one, too, sometimes, I think. She, she came home from work just a few minutes ago, came downstairs to the library, saw I was doing this, I think kind of rolled her eyes, waved, and went back on upstairs. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Alex. Thank and you. Will. Thank you so much, we'll guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.